This is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, and this is The Full Story. Six months ago, thousands of people in the Northern Rivers area of New South Wales woke up to water, rushing through their windows, swallowing up entire homes and streets. Well, it's been an incredibly challenging time, uh, particularly uh, for uh, our Northern Rivers communities. Yes, it's been flooding across the state, but nowhere has it been worse or as devastating, traumatic uh, and distressing um, for our communities um, in the Northern Rivers. In the following months, some of these towns would flood again, including the town of Lismore. Today, we stand in Lismore with many businesses have reopened or on the path to reopening. Uh, People have returned uh, to homes. But there is a very, very long journey ahead. Across New South Wales, there were nine lives lost, more than 14,000 homes damaged, and more than 5,000 left uninhabitable. Last week, the government unveiled their long-awaited response to an independent flood inquiry. But many residents who were hoping for answers about their towns, their homes and their futures were left wanting. Today, six months in limbo in the flood zone. It's Thursday, the 25th of August. Okay. So, Tanzan, you were in Lismore and the broader Northern Rivers area last week. Why were you there? Yes, I flew up to the Northern Rivers last Tuesday um, because we knew that the Premier was going to be standing up in Lismore to be handing down the response to the flood inquiry. Tamsin Rose is a New South Wales state reporter. So six months ago, the whole region was really badly flooded. So if you remember the pictures from Lismore, where towns were just totally underwater, um, Lismore was really badly hit. Lots of other places, Woodburn, Ballina, the whole region. And there's been two inquiries that have happened since then. So one was this independent inquiry, which is why we were up in Lismore last week. So that was done by Mary O'Kane and Mick Fuller. That's the former chief scientist and the former police commissioner. So they've been looking at what happened in the disaster and then also what led to that and then also what's happened since. So how's the recovery been and what needs to change before the next time that there's one of these events. And what were residents hoping to hear in this press conference from the Premier? Yes, this has been a really long-awaited trip. We've had thousands of homes destroyed and people living in caravans and tents with friends since then. And they're also really scared about what's going to happen in the next disaster because this was the worst flooding that Lismore's seen, um, even though it's an area that's flooded a lot. And we've got another La Nina on the way. So there's, there's, I guess there's an expectation and a, a nervousness around what that's going to bring. So people just wanted to know, are they going to be able to move back into their homes at some point? Should they even be bothering to rebuild if the, a lot of the town's going to be moved? Right. And what are the types of things that governments can do to answer these questions? So there's a few different things the government can do, but some of the main things that they're thinking about are land swaps and buybacks. Mm. Effectively, a buyback would be the government giving you some money for your land or potentially for your land and your, your home and saying, thank you, you can now use this money to buy elsewhere. One issue with that is people have bought into floodplains because they can afford to. Um, so potentially the money they're going to get back means they won't actually be able to buy elsewhere. And as we know, the whole region's seen a, a boom during COVID. Mm. And so whether or not they can actually afford to buy someone with that money is a real question. 
Um, in terms of a land swap, well, that could mean the government gives them land elsewhere. If that's land the government already has, it's crown land, that might work. But the problem is a lot of that crown land is unusable because it might also be on a floodplain. So the government's potentially also got to procure some land for people to move to, which is something that, I mean, could take a while because they've got to buy that land and they've got to separate it up. They've got to create whole new areas where people can live. Right. So I imagine residents were pretty keen to hear about which of these options they might be eligible for. Did they find that out, Tamsin? What they got in this press conference was a confirmation that there would be land swaps or buybacks. Some sort of scheme in the government was committed to doing that. And this is about making sure we have local and regional solutions. It is raised in um, areas of a buyback and, um, and land swap. That is something the government is committed to. The Premier Dominic Perrottet was really adamant on that. What was really lacking for a lot of residents was any detail. I know for many people that will provide uncertainty today in terms of eligibility, but that is something that we need to work through. So they've been told that they can express interest in one of these deals or one of these options. They can register their interest with the government sometime before the end of the month. Um, that hasn't been opened yet, but we're expecting it in the coming week. So that work commences today. And I want to make this very clear as well. We are going to rebuild these communities. And so obviously we all had a lot of questions um, kind of on behalf of the residents around what what the time frame would be for this. And when pressed on it, the Deputy Premier, Paul Tall. Absolutely, absolutely. And it will have a, will it be an answer? There will definitely be an answer before Christmas. And I can tell you right now that we're also, we're also uh, working through structures. We're also working around land, future land development here in this area. But for a lot of people who've been homeless since February, well, that's a, that's a really long wait. Do you mind showing me a little bit of... Yeah, you got, and you're welcome to do photos of wherever. So after the press conference, I went around out and about in Lismore and spoke to people about what had just happened. Yep, I'm not precious about anything. One of the conversations I had was with this young man called Harper. So my name is Harper Dalton Earls. I'm a social worker. And who's at my feet? Lemon. This is Lemon. (laughs) Hi, little one. Hello, Lemon. Who I actually first saw at the press conference because he'd gone... Um, and he was standing in the back because he actually wanted to hear directly from the Premier about this. I noticed him. He was wearing this really bright yellow shirt which said relocate our homes and he clearly wanted to talk to people about it and he clearly wanted to get his message directly across to the Premier and, and the other government officials who were there with him. Okay. So when did you buy? 2020. 2020, okay. So October 2020. He lives in a um, hardwood home right on right on the river in town. Um, he bought it a couple of years ago because it was what he could afford. He's a social worker. He was really excited. It was the first property he'd, he'd owned. Um, it was went totally under during the, the first and second floods and was pretty severely damaged. So as you can see, this whole house is hardwood uh, and the waterline, and I've left it there because I'm trying to paint the roof because the roof started leaking after the 28th. So you can see that's the waterline. Wow. That's where the water came up to. Wow. So just insane, hey? Yeah. Harper showed me where the water came up to on his walls and when we were going through the living room, you could see it's 
right almost at the ceiling. And his house is kind of different to a lot of the other houses on the street because it's still on the ground level, whereas a lot of the other ones are raised up on stilts. Beautiful timber. It's it is, isn't stunning. it? It's gorgeous. Like it was 1910. I found a half penny in the wall dated 1910. It's got the Queen's father on it. I was walking through his house and on one side he's um, reconstructing his kitchen. So I've done all of this myself. Wow. Um, and I don't have any trade skill whatsoever. Wow. I'm a social worker. And then as I got into his backyard. A water tank. I know. The irony of water ruining a water tank. I know. It literally ended up in their fence. I could see this massive water tank that had just been totally mangled and the, it really gave you an indication of what they'd been through. I mean, where we were standing had been totally underwater just a few months earlier. So how did Harper react to Perrottet's press conference and the announcement that he made? He was glad that there was something on the table. My response to that is I welcome the release of the inquiry report. Uh, However, our community does need more details, exactly what you hit the nail on the head with there. Like, I don't know if it's going to flood next month. Um, We need urgent action around the relocation, which my understanding the inquiry has suggested. But with the buyback, no detail. I don't know if I'm included. I don't know when it can happen. But given that he doesn't have any details at this point. He can't make plans. So you kind of you go to bed every night wondering next month or next week, could I do, have to do it all over again? But this time lose all of my donated stuff because everything here has been donated to me because I lot like I lost absolutely everything, everything that you can think of apart from the dog and my laptop. <laughs> Did Harper say whether he wants to stay or whether he'd be more interested in a buyback or a land swap? He does want a buyback because he doesn't want to go through another flood. But at the same time... Yeah. Like, don't tell me. Like, and I guess this is the other thing is in a buyback scheme, my first question would be, can I take my home? He really doesn't want the government to only offer him money for his land and his house f- to have them knock it down. If they try and say, well, to be eligible for the buyback scheme, your house has to be demolished because it needs to be deemed as unstructurally sound, I'll say, fuck off. I'll lock, like, I'll lock onto this house. There's a few issues there. One is it's a it's a beautiful house that's representative of the architecture of the area and it would be sad to lose that character if it could be relocated. But also we've got a trade shortage and we've got a material shortage. I don't want any of these houses. Any house that can be relocated should be relocated, particularly in a housing crisis and a trade shortage. So Tanzan, as you mentioned, the Bureau of Meteorology has recently announced that there's months of further rain ahead, driven by ongoing La Nina conditions. How is Harper dealing with the threat of further flooding, especially considering how much he's done to rebuild his home. And I honestly think um, there's a term in social work called trauma fatigued. I think we're just trauma fatigued. I think people can't actually take it on board at this point. Yeah, he's he's really terrified. And that was something that came through with every single person I talked to. People told me that they have a panic attack every time it rains, that they that they wake up in the middle of the night imagining that someone's knocking on their door, telling them to leave, that they wake up and they're scared that they're going to see water beside their bed again. Mm. These people are traumatised. They've just been told there's going to be another really wet summer ahead. They really don't want to go through this again, so they want to get out before that happens. But that, that little things, that's where I'm starting to find myself, start to have trauma responses and feel like it's pointless. You do half of this and you go, fuck, I may as well just give up. What's the point? It could flood tomorrow. But at the same time, I can't cook anywhere properly. Like I can't use a kitchen. So you have to be able to build something where you can live, but at the same time be under constant threat until the government does something. So it feels like you're just living under threat. And as scared as he is about 
when the next flood hits, Harper's back in his home that he owns and it's relatively habitable at the moment. But there's still 5,000 homes or around that that are still deemed uninhabitable and a lot of people are in really precarious situations. Some of the most precarious situations are renters. D. 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 And then mould. D. Mould. <laughs> and that's people like D. Mould. It's my real name. Is it really? That's my real name. But everyone's like, oh yeah, I love your name. D. Mould. It's my name. It's topical. Like M O L D? No, like mould. Mould. D's really amazing. She only has full use of one of her arms, and yet she was still out in those tinnies, if you remember those pictures from, you know, the heroes in tinnies rescuing people off people's roofs. So you were on a boat? Yes. Rescuing people? Yes. And your house was completely underwater? Yes. <laughs> we escaped the night before and then I came back in well, seven, eight, nine 8, 9 o'clock in the morning on a boat and spent the whole day on the boat pulling people out. So Dee's a renter. She lost all the contents of her home and the internal structures when that first flood went through in February. And after that she realised that Many locals, just like her, they were living in homes without internal walls, which was really hot, really cold and really difficult. So she founded this group called Insulate Lismore and they've been travelling around the area fixing up people's homes just like hers, getting them to a livable point. Insulate Lismore, yeah. yeah we're, we're independent. We fundraise for ourselves and we've got a group of probably, I don't know, 20, 25 rolling volunteers. What started it was trying to live in this house and it was so cold in here. And then once we got two rooms lined, we could heat them. And then it was it was still rough, but it was doable. Yeah. And then the realisation, we met a 77-year-old Jeanette who was living in a shed outside her house, a single-skinned steel shed on a concrete slab. And that was like... She was so cold, she was staying in bed. She was staying in bed all day, all night, and she couldn't get out of bed, so we lined her shed. And there was, you know, one family, the daughter had cerebral palsy, we did a bit for them. And so Dee's been doing all of this while she's kind of back in her house, still kind of in temporary accommodation, and she was pretty disappointed with what the government came to town and offered. So that's (laughs) hearing today that that decision's probably not going to be till a year after the flood. That's an incredibly slow response, you know. Um, I've been disappointed in the government response from day one. From the point where we, where the community was on the wall rescuing people, there was I didn't see any government response. Next, we look at why making a plan for the future of these towns is taking so long. So, Tamsin, it has been six months since the first floods hit. Why does the government still not have a plan for what to do with these flood-affected houses? Why has it taken so long? I mean, that's the question that all the residents are asking. A lot of the land that the government already owns is on a floodplain. Where they're going to move people is really is really complex and they've got to make sure they've got the planning right. Um, and so that is going to take some time. 
Um, they have been sending people through homes in Lismore and the surrounding region across the Northern Rivers to work out how many homes were totally damaged, how many could be moved, how many, I mean, really just what the situation was. They've been assessing people's homes for this whole time. But the reality is when they don't have a system in place, if they don't know where they're going to move them, if they don't know how much they're going to offer for them, if they don't know where that money is going to be coming from, if they don't know who's going to be administering it. I mean, these are all really live questions. Mm. A good example of just how challenging this issue is for governments is when all these people were living in these homes that were either flood affected or effectively destroyed and made uninhabitable during the flooding events at the start of this year, the government came in and announced that there were going to be 2,000 temporary housing facilities that would, you know, be able to house them for up to you know two or three years in the in the region and they were supposed to be up and running I guess really quite quickly within months and certainly by now but the problem is the government hasn't known where to put these temporary housing facilities so there's one example in Mullumbimby where there are these housing pods that were supposed to go in a few months ago residents are really concerned because they think they're going on it that whether because they're going onto a floodplain um so they're they're now putting in fill into this floodplain to raise them above above the flood level Um, But that's concerning for the other residents about what that's going to do to water flows. So it's a really complex issue trying to find enough land to rehouse all these people. And there's actually only fewer than 60 emergency housing pods that are currently being occupied in northern New South Wales. That was up to date as of last week. That's just how complex it's been to find places to put temporary housing pods for two years. What we're talking about here is relocating people permanently. You can understand why it's so complex. So that's housing, Tamsin. Were there any other big announcements from this presser with the Premier last week? Yeah, so this presser came on the back of this report that handed the government 28 recommendations. So the government's accepted six of those in full and the rest in principle. So they agree that something should happen in that space and they've got to work out what to do. One of the biggest things to come out of this is effectively a bureaucratic overhaul of whose responsibility emergencies like this are. Mm. So for this most recent flooding event, that was supposed to be dealt with by Resilience New South Wales. That was an organisation that was started two years ago following the Black Summer bushfires. What this inquiry found is that they had not done a great job and they've decided to effectively split it up into a couple of different organisations. So if you can stick with me, we had Resilience New South Wales. Mm. What we've got now is Recovery New South Wales and a Reconstruction Authority. Wow. So lots of R words. Resilience becomes recovery and it's a what they're calling a leaner, nimble agency. So that's going to be focused on the first 100 days of, after a disaster. So we're talking getting people out of their flood-affected homes or their fire-affected homes, whatever it is, getting them into a temporary accommodation and just getting that initial totally chaotic period sorted. Mm. And then the Reconstruction Authority comes in. So that's been modelled on the Queensland Authority that was formed after the 2010-2011 floods. Um, And they'll be the state's lead agency responsible for disaster prevention. Right. So this is some big ideas and some big changes. What do people on the ground think about this when they heard about it? Uh, Honestly, people on the ground did chuckle a bit at this. I think the reality is they've just been living it. They don't care what the organisation who's leading the response is called. They just care how it functions. So, Tamsin, it sounds like these communities won't really know about their long-term future until the end of the year, sometime around Christmas, according to the government. What is life going to look like for them in the intervening months while they wait? 
Yeah, it's going to be really difficult. Something that was really interesting to see when I was on the ground there was that people have taken it upon themselves to just get on with the job. They've stopped waiting for the government to help them and they're taking it upon themselves to rebuild and get through this as a community. And a lot of that's been volunteers. This here is a drain that does absolutely nothing. It just fills up with toads. I don't see why they can't clear it off, fill that in. A really good example of that was this woman I met called Rose Hansen. She's a grandma and she's got 14 grandkids. She's in Grafton. Whoa. Whoa. If you want to sit on that one, I'll bring no, no, this one you... over. I just put my... Oh, OK. So she's in Woodburn, okay. which is about an hour south of Byron Bay. Uh, I bought this place about seven years ago. She got back into her house 10 days after the first floods and it was a really traumatising experience for her. She was by herself. I came back on the 10th day. Okay. I couldn't get in before that. No. But the, this was still had fish and everything in the backyard swimming. It was like a lake. It looked like you had a lake in your backyard. Uh, there was a, a fridge over the door on the inside so she couldn't even get into her own house and she was effectively trying to break into her own home when a car pulled up. And the man just came up and said, are you OK? And I went, no, not really. So would you like some help? And I went, yes, please. And he was really lovely. He walked back to the back of the house with her. He came. He couldn't open the door either. And he said, look, do you mind if I get some more people? So he called out to people and carloads of people just came and they said, just sit here and um, sat here with my car, parked here in the shade for the dog and cats, and um, they just started taking everything out. Wow. Kicking doors. Just strangers. Yeah. And then over the following weeks, she was just inundated with people volunteering to come and empty her house out. From everywhere. Wow. All different places. Melbourne, Brisbane, everywhere, Gold Coast. And then since the second flood, it's been a lot of the same people and others who've been volunteering to rebuild her house. Who are these people from the community that are helping her? It's been a really big range of people. Miles is in there. He's mm. been here since day one. Wow. And, and so you had no relationship to... with him before that? No, nothing. He's from Western Australia originally. He goes and helps every house, whatever. How's he getting by? I don't know, you're going to have to ask him uh, let yeah. him talk yeah. to you. Yeah. yeah. Make sure I get your details right. Um, first name? Uh, Miles, M-Y-L-E-S. Mm-hmm. What's your surname, Miles? Phillips, P-H-I. One of the L-L-L-I-S. characters that I got to meet who um, Rose was particularly excited to introduce me to was this guy called Miles. W-A, is that right? Yeah, from Perth, um, randomly. I only come here for a holiday. Uh, back in November. He was 28. Um, he used to be a real estate agent in WA and then flipped a few houses. And so he has some pretty basic carpentry skills. He'd actually been in Byron on holiday. And then um, the borders closed during COVID. Oh, yeah. And then I couldn't really get back until March when they're opening back up. Mm. Um, and then that's when the floods happened, I think February 28. Mm. And he'd bought this... Just so weird, this story. I happened to have a red truck, like fire truck, <laughs> randomly. He'd bought a this old fire truck and he'd been driving it around and he just, he just wanted a fun vehicle while he was on holiday and was going to sell it. So instead of a van, he bought a fire truck for his kind of caravaning experience. And then found himself in the middle of a natural disaster. Wow. And then I had like a fire hose and a water tank and a pump. Wow. Yeah. So weird. It just happened... <laughs> And so he was one of the first people that jumped out of a car and started helping Rose empty her house out. 
and he remembered her. So he he ended up going back to Perth for two weeks and then coming back because he felt really compelled to keep helping people. And he thought, well, I'm just going to retrace my steps and go back to the people I helped clear out their houses because he knew how much lay ahead of them in terms of the rebuild. Mm. And he had, as I said, some pretty basic carpentry skills. And so he went back to Rose and said, you know, how can I help? And then I thought, oh, I might as well keep going and then just came back for the rebuild. Um, yeah, and I haven't really stopped. How much of all of this ongoing work of recovery is currently being done by volunteers and community members on the ground, Tamsin? It's definitely not to say that the government's not not done anything on this and they certainly are helping and they've, they've helped a lot of people and that came through with a lot of conversations I had, but... The reality is when people are uninsured, they don't have money and the trade crisis is so real in their region, people have been really relying on just the help of strangers. I see I see why people don't want to move when people just tell the locals, you know, sell up and move out. It's not so much the, the place but the people that they're all sort of connected to. Something that came through really strongly with every single person I talked to was this deep sense of community. It came up time and time again. People felt like a family. And, you know, every other person's giving you a hug and sort of saying thanks and, and just they've welcomed you with open arms. And so it's more of like a family now. And so you sort of just look out for each other and, yeah, help out where you can. They've been brought together by this, you know, common goal in in rebuilding and just making life a little bit easier for each other. So that's what's helped me sort of just keep going until, I don't know when I'll stop, but yeah, I'll just keep doing it. And it's brought everybody close together. It really has been a blessing that way. Mm. Everybody talks and helps each other. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing, that, isn't it? Mm. How does something bad, something good's happen? Mm. You do find that. In yeah. your life, oh, I've always found it. Yeah, you can go through the worst trauma, and it's the people that help you through it. They'll stay your friends forever. Mm. You never forget what they've done or how they've helped you. That was Rose Hanson talking to New South Wales State reporter Tamsin Rose. You can check out all of Tansen's reporting on the flood recovery at theguardian.com. And if you want to hear a bit more about the heartwarming stories of the volunteers that you just heard from in this episode, I do recommend checking out her piece titled A Family Now, Volunteers Helping New South Wales Flood Victims Six Months On. We've linked to that on the full story page. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert, Camilla Hannon and Joe Koning, who also did the sound design and mixing. The executive producers of Full Story are Gabrielle Jackson, Miles Martignoni, and me, Laura Mefiotes. Okay, catch you tomorrow.